Chapter 15, Part 1 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Burgoyne. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1. The Venetian Years by Giacomo Casanova. Episode 3 Military Career. Chapter 15, Part 1. Progress of my amour, my journey to Otranto. I enter the service of Madame F. A fortunate excoriation. The room I entered was full of people. His Excellency, seeing me, smiled and drew upon me the attention of all his guests by saying aloud, Here comes that young man who is good judge of princes. My lord, I have become a judge of nobility by frequenting the society of men like you. The ladies are curious to know all you have done from time of your escape from Corfu up to your return. Then you sentence me, Monsignor, to make a public confession? Exactly, but as it is to be a confession, be careful not to admit the most insignificant circumstance, and suppose that I am not in the room. On the contrary, I wish to receive absolution only from Your Excellency, but my history will be a long one. If such is the case, your confessor gives you permission to be seated. I gave all the particulars of my adventures, with the exception of my dalliance with the nymphs of the island. Your story is a very instructive one, observed the general. Yes, my lord, for the adventures show that a young man is never so near his utter ruin than when, excited by some great passion, he finds himself able to minister to it, thanks to the gold in his purse. I was preparing to take my leave when the Major Domo came to inform me that His Excellency desired me to remain to supper. I had therefore the honour of a seat at his table, but not the pleasure of eating, for I was obliged to answer the questions addressed to me from all quarters and I could not contrive to swallow a single mouthful. I was seated next to the proto-papa Belgari, and I entreated his pardon for having ridiculed Deldemo Polo's oracle. It is nothing else but regular cheating, he said, but it is very difficult to put a stop to it. It is an old custom. A short time afterwards, Madame F whispered a few words to the general, who turned to me and said that he would be glad to hear me relate what had occurred to me in Constantinople, with the wife of the Turk Yusuf, and at another friend's house, where I had seen bathing by moonlight. I was rather surprised at such an invitation, and told him that such frolics were not worth listening to and the general not pressing me no more was said about it, but I was astonished at Madame F.'s indiscretion, 
She had no business to make my confidences public. I wanted her to be jealous of her own dignity, which I loved even more than her person. Two or three days later, she said to me, Why did you refuse to tell your adventures in Constantinople before the general? Because I do not wish everybody to know that you allow me to tell you such things. What I may dare, madam, to say to you when we are alone, I would certainly not say to you in public. And why not? It seems to me, on the contrary, that if you are silent in public out of respect for me, you ought to be all the more silent when we are alone. I wanted to amuse you, and have exposed myself to the danger of displeasing you, but I can assure you, madam, that I will not run such a risk again. I have no wish to pry into your intentions, but it strikes me that if your wish was to please me, you ought not to have run the risk of obtaining the opposite result. We take supper with the general this evening, and Monsieur D.R. has been asked to bring you. I feel certain that the general will ask you again for your adventures in Constantinople, and this time you cannot refuse him. Monsieur D.R. came in, and we went to the general's. I thought as we were driving along that, although Madame F. seemed to have intended to humiliate me, I ought to accept it all as a favour of fortune, because, by compelling me to explain my refusal to the general, Madame F. had, at the same time, compelled me to a declaration of my feelings, which was not without importance. The provitore general gave me a friendly welcome, and kindly handed me a letter which had come with the official dispatches from Constantinople. I bowed my thanks, and put the letter in my pocket, but he told me that he was himself a great lover of news, and that I could read my letter. I opened it. It was from Yusuf, who announced the death of Count de Bonval. Hearing the name of the worthy Yusuf, the general asked me to tell him my adventure with his wife. I could not now refuse, and I began a story which amused and interested the general and his friends for an hour or so, but which was from beginning to end the work of my imagination. Thus I continued to respect the privacy of Yusuf, to avoid implicating the good fame of Madame F., and to show myself in a light which was tolerably advantageous to me. My story, which was full of sentiment, did me a great deal of honour, and I felt very happy when I saw from the expression of Madame F.'s face that she was pleased with me, although somewhat surprised. When we found ourselves again in her house, she told me, in the presence of Monsieur D.R., that the story I had related to the general was certainly very pretty, although purely imaginary, that she was not angry with me, because I had amused her, 
but that she could not help remarking my obstinacy in refusing compliance with her wishes. Then, turning to Monsieur D. R., she said, Monsieur Casanova pretends that if he had given an account of his meeting with Yusuf's wife, without changing anything, everybody would think that I allowed him to entertain me with indecent stories. I want you to give your opinion about it, will you? She added, speaking to me. Be so good as to relate immediately the adventure in the same words which you have used when you told me of it. Yes, madam, if you wish me to do so. Stung to the quick by an indiscretion, which, as I did not yet know women thoroughly, seemed to me without example. I cast all fears of displeasing to the winds, related the adventure with all the warmth of an impassioned poet, and without disguising or attenuating in the least the desires which the charms of the Greek beauty had inspired me with. Do you think, said Monsieur D'Arre, to Madame F., that if he ought to have related that adventure before all our friends, as he has just related it to us, if it be wrong for him to tell it in public, it is also wrong to tell it to me in private. You are the only judge of that, yes, if he has displeased you, no, if he has amused you. As for my own opinion, here it is. He has just now amused me very much, but he would have greatly displeased me if he had related the same adventure in public. Then, exclaimed Madame F., I must request you never to tell me in private anything that you cannot repeat in public. I promise, madam, to act always according to your wishes. It being understood, added Monsieur D'Arre, smiling, that madam reserves all rights of repealing that order whenever she may think fit. I was vexed, but I contrived not to show it. A few minutes more, and we took leave of Madame F. I was beginning to understand that charming women, and to dread the ordeal to which she would subject me, but love was stronger than fear, and fortified with hope. I had the courage to endure the thorns, so as not to gather the rose at the end of my sufferings. I was particularly pleased to find that Monsieur D'R. was not jealous of me, even when she seemed to dare him to it. This was a point of the greatest importance. A few days afterwards, as I was entertaining her on various subjects, she remarked how unfortunate it had been for me to enter the lazaretto at Ancona without any money. In spite of my distress, I said, I fell in love with a young and beautiful Greek slave, who very nearly contrived to make me break through all the sanitary laws. How so? You are alone, madam, and I have not forgotten your orders. Is it a very improper story? No, yet I would not relate it to you in public. Well, she said laughing, I repeal my order. 
as Monsieur D. R. said I would. Tell me all about it. I told my story, and, seeing that she was pensive, I exaggerated the misery I had felt at not being able to complete my conquest. What do you mean by your misery? I think that the poor girl was more to be pitied than you. You have never seen her since. I beg your pardon, madam. I met her again, but I dare not tell you when or how. Now you must go on. It is all nonsense for you to stop. Tell me all. I expect you have been guilty of some black deed. Very far from it, madam, for it was a very sweet, although incomplete, enjoyment. Go on, but do not call things exactly by their names. It is not necessary to go into details. Emboldened by the renewal of her order, I told her, without looking her in the face of my meeting with the Greek slave in the presence of Bellino, and of the act which was cut short by the appearance of her master. When I had finished my story, Madame F. remained silent, and I turned the conversation into a different channel, for though I felt myself on an excellent footing with her, I knew likewise that I had to proceed with great prudence. She was too young to have lowered herself before, and she would certainly look upon a connection with me as lowering of her dignity. Fortune, which had always smiled upon me in the most hopeless cases, did not intend to ill-treat me on this occasion, and procured me, on that very same day, a favour of a very peculiar nature. My charming lady-love, having pricked her finger rather severely, screamed loudly, and stretched her hand towards me, entreating me to suck the blood flowing from the wound. You may judge, dear reader, whether I was long in seizing that beautiful hand, and if you are, or if you have ever been in love, you will easily guess the manner in which I performed my delightful work. What is a kiss? Is it not an ardent desire to inhale a portion of the being we love? Was not the blood I was sucking from that charming wound a portion of the woman I worshipped? When I had completed my work, she thanked me affectionately, and told me to spit out the blood I had sucked. Is it here, I said, placing my hand on my heart, and God alone knows what happiness it has given me. You have drunk my blood with happiness. Are you then a cannibal? I believe not, madam, but it would have been sacrilege in my eyes if I had suffered one single drop of your blood to be lost. One evening there was an unusually large attendance at Monsieur D'Ars' assembly and we were talking of the carnival which was near at hand. Everybody was regretting the lack of actors, and the impossibility of enjoying the pleasures of the theatre. I immediately offered to procure a good company at my expense, if the boxes were at once subscribed for, and the monopoly of the Faro Bank granted to me. No time was to be lost. 
for the carnival was approaching, and I had to go to Otranto to engage a troop. My proposal was accepted with great joy, and the Provator General placed a felucca at my disposal. The boxes were all taken in three days, and a Jew took the pit, two nights a week accepted, which I reserved for my own profit. The carnival being very long that year, I had every chance of success. It is said generally that the profession of theatrical manager is difficult, but if that is the case, I have not found it so by experience, and am bound to affirm the contrary. I left Corfu in the evening, and having a good breeze in my favour, I reached Otranto by daybreak the following morning, without the oarsman having had to row a stroke. The distance from Corfu to Otranto is only about fifteen leagues. I had no idea of landing, owing to the quarantine which is always enforced for any ship or boat coming to Italy from the east. I only went to the parlour of the lazaretto, where, placed behind a grating, you can speak to any person who calls, and who must stand behind another grating placed opposite, at a distance of six feet. As soon as I announced that I had come for the purpose of engaging a troupe of actors to perform in Corfu, the managers of the two companies, then in Otranto, came to the parlour to speak to me. I told them at once that I wished to see all the performers, one company at a time. The two rival managers gave me then a very comic scene, each manager wanting the other to bring his troop first. The harbour master told me that the only way to settle the matter was to say myself which of the two companies I would see first. One was from Naples, the other from Sicily. Not knowing either, I gave the preference to the first. Don Fastidio, the manager, was very vexed, while Batty Paglia, the director of the second, was delighted because he hoped that, after seeing the Neapolitan troupe, I would engage his own. An hour afterwards, Fastidio returned with all his performers, and my surprise may be imagined when amongst them I recognised Petronio and his sister Marina, who, the moment she saw me, screamed for joy, jumped over the grating, and threw herself in my arms. A terrible hubbub followed, and high words passed between Fastidio and the harbour-master. Marina, being in the service of Fastidio, the captain compelled him to confine her to the lazaretto, where she would have to perform quarantine at his expense. The poor girl cried bitterly, but I could not remedy her imprudence. I put a stop to the quarrel by telling Fastidio to show me all his people, one after the other. Petronio belonged to his company and performed the lovers, he told me that he had a letter for me from Therese. I was also glad to see a Venetian of my acquaintance 
who played the pantaloon in the pantomime, three tolerably pretty actresses, a palsanella and a scaramouche. Altogether, the troupe was a decent one. I told Fastidio to name the lowest salary he wanted for all his company, assuring him that I would give the preference to his rival if he should ask me too much. Sir, he answered, we are twenty, and shall require six rooms with ten beds, one sitting-room for all of us, and thirty Neapolitan ducats a day, all travelling expenses paid. Here is my stock of plays, and we will perform those that you may choose. Thinking of poor Marina, who would have to remain in the lazaretto before she could reappear on the stage at Otranto, I told Fastidio to get the contract ready, as I wanted to go away immediately. I had scarcely pronounced these words, the war broke out again, between the manager-elect and his unfortunate competitor. Battipaglia, in his rage, called Marina a harlot, and said that she had arranged beforehand with Fastidio to violate the rules of the lazaretto in order to compel me to choose their troupe. Petronio, taking his sister's part, joined Fastidio, and the unlucky Battipaglia was dragged outside and treated to a generous dose of blows and fisticuffs, which was not exactly the thing to console him for a lost engagement. Soon afterwards, Petronio brought me Teresa's letter. She was ruining the Duke, getting rich accordingly, and waiting for me in Naples. Everything being ready towards evening, I left Otranto with twenty actors, and six large trunks containing their complete wardrobes. A light breeze which was blowing from the south might have carried us to Corfu in ten hours, but when we had sailed about one hour, my Bokri informed me that he could see by the moonlight a ship which might prove to be Corsair and get hold of us. I was unwilling to risk anything, so I ordered them to lower the sails and return to Otranto. At daybreak we sailed again, with a good westerly wind, which would also have taken us to Corfu but after we had gone two or three hours, the captain pointed out to me a brigantine, evidently a pirate, for she was shaping her course so as to get to windward of us. I told him to change the course, and to go by starboard, to see if the brigantine would follow us, but she immediately imitated our manoeuvre. I could not go back to Otranto and I had no wish to go to Africa, so I ordered the men to shape our course, so as to land on the coast of Calabria, by hard rowing and at the nearest point. The sailors, who were frightened to death, communicated their fears to my comedians, and soon I heard nothing but weeping and sobbing. Every one of them was calling earnestly upon some saint, but not one single prayer to God did I hear. The bewailings of Scaramouche, 
the dull and spiritless despair of fastidio offered a picture which would have made me laugh heartily if the danger had been imaginary and not real marina alone was cheerful and happy because she did not realize the danger we were running and she laughed at the terror of the crew and of her companions end of chapter 15 part 1